Hi everyone, Kevin and at Eagle Strong Voice again. It's August 25th. Well, don't you love the way that mass murderers continually need to pretend their crime never happened and deny that their evidence is nowhere in sight? Of course, that charade is playing itself out again in Canada, where the mass murderers of Indian residential school children pretending now that the graves of their victims don't exist. So the question, of course, is where do the little bodies go? That's why I wrote this piece, Bodies, Bodies, Who's Got the Bodies? Once more down Canada's memory hole. Starting with some telling quotes from John Zimmerman, the principal of the Anglican Mohawk Indian School in May 1948 in Brantford, Ontario, when he said to the government, we've been forced to bury the children two and three to a grave. There are so many of them. And the researcher for the Anglican church that ran that death camp, Leona Moses, said to me in January 2012, Archbishop Fred Hills told all of us back in the spring of 2010 that any evidence of the Mohawk school death records and the kids' graves had to be destroyed immediately. And of course, that infamous spook, the RCMP inspector Peter Montague, who's been involved in shutting down our campaign, said to me in person in February 2012, in another 10 years, Kevin, nobody's going to remember anything about you or the graves of those children. You can count on that. Well, the venerable muckraking journalist in Washington, D.C., I.F. Stone, once remarked that he didn't mind high-level cover-ups as much as the banal predictability of the whole thing. Well, he might have had Christian Canada in mind when he made that remark. I find one of the blessings and curses of having to live to nearly three score and ten years is that nothing surprises me anymore, especially when it comes to our homegrown atrocities. The speed and the efficiency by which Generations of slaughtered indigenous children are shoved into the ground or into furnaces by church and state, and then erased from official memory. The whole thing has been truly breathtaking, as has the burying of every effort to expose and prosecute that Canadian Holocaust. The killers in church and state have the Canadian public to thank for that, since it takes an entire village to not only raise a child, but to murder one, and to murder many. With that in mind, allow me an eye of stone moment as I sigh and shake my sadder but wiser head about the latest trite obfuscation of our group crime pissing down on all of us from the summits of the Great White North. Because now it's become fashionable to claim that there are no mass graves of Indian residential school children, even when the people making that claim also admit that many such children died. So then, where did all those little bodies end up if not under the ground? The Holocaust deniers are not saying. It's not an especially original claim. As early as 1903, barely a decade after the first death camps they call Indian schools opened, the Canadian government began suppressing records of the enormous death rates in the church-run camps while claiming that very few children were dying in there. We know that by the second year of these schools, over half of these kids were dying regularly. Meanwhile, while they were covering all that up, Ottawa was instructing their Indian agents to give the Catholic, Anglican, and United Churches a completely free hand to do whatever they wanted to the kids in those camps, quote, taking care to avoid too close an inquiry, unquote. In more re recent years, when our grassroots campaign of death camp survivors began protesting the crime and we launched our own investigative tribunal in June 1998, guilty church officials quickly deny that any children had died in those death camps. One particularly silly United Church clergyman named Max Warren actually confronted me one day and screamed in my face and in front of smiling Vancouver reporters, quote, 
There was only one perpetrator in our residential schools, and I can guarantee he never killed a single child. Unquote. Well, comic relief aside, the latest naysayers are no more sophisticated in their lies than was poor Max Warren. In their mad scramble to close a book on any recollection of genocide in Canada, church, media, and academic pundits are clumsily contradicting themselves as they hurriedly revise previously accepted truths. For example, even their own stage-managed, perpetrator-run Truth and Reconciliation Commission officially stated that over half the children in the Indian schools were dying every year, and they were being buried in mass graves at nearly a hundred former such schools across Canada. But now Big Brother has rewritten his own history and shoved those remarks down the great Canadian memory hole. Nevertheless, it's been said by, at least by William Shakespeare, that murder will always come out. But of course, the bard lived long before the internet. Now that memory, knowledge, and official history can be reimagined and altered in the blink of an eye, and the shift is accepted and believed by masses of people, including the so-called awake ones, in that situation, hard-won truths and simple logic have nowhere to hang their hats anymore. Fortunately, something deeper abides. It's embodied in not only the witnesses to genocide, but those of us who have fought for years to unearth the crime, have held the bones of children in our hands, and have come to know the people who buried them. And of course, all of that evidence is found in MurderByDecree.com. But the question remains, where did the bodies of at least 65,000 children die? Who died? Where did those bodies go? Our campaign and its voluminous research have repeatedly and repeatedly shown where they went. Into the ground, at first at least, and then into residential school furnaces when the staff ran out of burial sites. But according to the Canadian press, since at least 1960, the Canadian government has systematically destroyed evidence of criminality in those places and disinterred and wiped out mass graves of native children all over the country. The official church, state, and RCMP-led cleanup operation intensified when the schools officially closed in 1972, but especially after our protests and church occupations kicked in after our tribunal in 1998. And anyone with a shred of memory or brain matter knows all that. So it seems strange that the perpetrators of Canada's worst and most hidden crime feel the need to go to such ridiculous extents to wipe out all knowledge of their mass murder of children when the brutal truth has been so well concealed by them. The death camp survivors have been bought off, scared off, or killed off, our campaigns been destroyed, and the graves and their incriminating bones mostly dug up, dug up and pulped. So why would the powers who got away with the crime reopen the case and start talking about dead children again? Is there a latent guilt going on in them, exhibited even in the lifeless echelons of power, or something more at work? Well, one of the things you learn quickly on Canada's West Coast is that a mass grave is no respecter of persons, either past or present. The same body dumping grounds that for years held the remains of the Red School children or their smallpox exterminated elders are now routinely being used by today's death squads run by China, the RCMP, and their underworld government and church associates. Naturally, these guys don't want anyone poking around looking for mass graves because of what they might turn up bones that might have been put in there recently. One of the indicators of this is that one of the biggest deniers of residential school mass graves is the chief perpetrator of the crime, the Roman Catholic Church. Recently, top Catholic bishops have, quote, debunked 
the idea of such, such graves without, of course, providing any evidence to back up their remarks. But it's hardly a coincidence that the same church's Vatican Bank is a chief financial underwriter of the Chinese economic takeover of Canada's West Coast that's causing the deaths of so many Native people today. The Vatican Bank is bankrolling the extermination of Native tribes, occupying their natural gas and oil deposits hungered after by PetroChina and other companies. Early in 2012, after excavation at the Brentford death camp had unearthed children's bones and was shut down by government-paid Aboriginal chiefs, that shadowy RCMP spook named Peter Montague dropped by to gloat. After tossing me a grudging compliment that I was still at it after 15 years, despite all his efforts, this black ops specialist gave me an insider's grin and said to me, Kevin, in another 10 years, nobody's going to remember anything about you or the graves of those children. You can count on that. Well, that was 11 years ago, and, of course, Peter Montague was right. Very few people now remember it. But as I said to Peter Montague, it doesn't matter. For what's past is prologue, what's to come is in our hands. The cop just stared at me with a worried look. He obviously hadn't read Shakespeare. Stand by for more soon. Murderbydecree.com. This is Kevin Annett, Eagle Strong Voice. Hi, Kev. How's it going? You you had a, a rough couple of days, I remember you saying. Well, not to be uh, unexpected, because we're getting close to the nerve, and they always respond when you get close. Um, two days ago, I was jumped by two cops just north of Maine and Hastings in Vancouver, taken into an alley, worked over for about a minute or two with their kind of little, little mini blackjack hand clubs, and... Uh, Wrecked up my shoulder uh, here. It's hard to move it now. I'm probably going to get treatment. My face was all bloody. I had blood pouring down my face. They took off after a minute. Didn't say anything. Some of the guys I know down there helped me. I got me to friends who took me then to a safe house where I still am. But um, it's definitely because one of the things I've been doing for the last number of weeks, I mean, down there every day, talking to homeless people who are responding to our invitation to start occupying these churches again. Because don't forget, as part of our campaign we're rubbing up in September, um, the Catholic, Anglican, and United Churches have all been banished from Vancouver. Well, the whole country, but especially Vancouver, uh, by the elders' orders, including uh, Chief Capilano's order, telling them to vacate. And we have the lawful right, since they're admitted genocidal bodies, we have the lawful right to go in and take over the churches. Well, we've been telling the homeless, come on with us. We're going to reclaim these churches, open them up to you guys. We've been getting a good response. We've got several dozen people willing to, to do that with us. Now, in response, you know, the churches are obviously freaking out again like they did last time. And uh, the order has gone out to, to stop this. We've had reports of other people getting worked over. Some of the people who live in their tents off Oppenheimer Park, have all said they're coming down. They were just cleaned out the other day. The Vancouver police showed up and uh, dumped all their tents in the dumpsters, attacking the people. So this is what happened to me. It's just one example of, of the pushback you get. And uh, it's also related to the fact that uh, in September 11th, we're issuing the indictments and summonses against people who were directly responsible for the murder of four of our friends, Harriet Nahani, William Coombs, uh, Bingo Dawson and Ricky Lavalle, um, in the summons that we can talk about and the indictment, we're saying the Vancouver police were involved in these killings, uh, the typical actors, these churches and others. We're naming them by names. And um, 
and so yeah that's going to also be one of the reasons that um you know they're they're attacking us again because of what we we represent and in this indictment you sent me today it's, it's specifically vancouver right all harriet nahani uh yeah Bing, johnny bingo dawson and william coombs were all specifically in the city of uh vancouver that were, were killed were, Yep, they they were all killed in Vancouver after being arrested by either the Vancouver police or the RCMP. And in the case, you know, in the case of Harriet, she started the campaign with me. She was the first eyewitness to come forward in 1995 about witnessing a little girl, Maisie Shaw, kicked to her death by United Church Principal Alfred Caldwell at the Alberni School, right near where I had worked. Um, Harriet was actively involved in uh, not only the campaign, but the church occupations. We, she and I were to go across the country uh, with our film Unrepentant. A week before that was to happen, she got arrested, put in a, an unheated prison uh, called the Surrey Remand Center. She was 71 years old. She comes out, dies of, quote, lung cancer within three weeks. Um, you know the story of William Coombs getting killed in St. Paul's Hospital. Bingo Dawson, just like me the other day, worked over in the same alley by the Vancouver police. Wow, uh, Ricky Lavalle, yeah, Ricky Lavalle witnessed it. He got, he died of blows to the chest. I mean, it's one after another. It's like a bad gangster B movie. The way they, they kill native people in, in plain sight and we're calling them out on it. We're naming the people responsible. They'll be issued summons. We're going to be convening in a court to look into those specific cases, right? Would you would you say oh, it's difficult to say? But the fact that you were in exactly the same alley is is that a coincidence or is that is that some no. kind of okay? No, it's it it's you it's were with a group this... of people. No, you were with a group. I, I, I pulled you down. I, I I had been with a group of people. I was walking north on Main Street past the alley, and that's when they grabbed me uh, when I was by myself. They always do that. They would do this often after one of our protests. And we always said to people, don't go home by yourself. They pick on people. They pick off, you know, like armies in a rear guard. They pick off the stragglers, They uh, anyone who's on their own. That's what happened to me. I forgot to follow my own advice. I was so enthusiastic that day because of the, the good response we're getting. We forget these things, you know. And one moment, they watch you all the time. They monitor you. The minute you make a slip, boom, they're in like sharks. They didn't say anything. So they wrench your shoulder. Your tendons come out of your shoulder. You got blood pissing out your eye. You, you got you saw your black eye yesterday. But no. they didn't. They didn't communicate. They 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 no. were no threats. No ultimatums. No. No. It was the uh, a Vancouver police sergeant in his forties, a bald guy, six foot three. They took their name tags and their numbers off, like they always do whenever they're doing a, a takeout action. He was accompanied by a second cop and East Indian guy in his thirties. You know, I see these guys around. They're the goon squad. Uh, you know, they do this all the time to natives with even more dire effects. But, you know, I know it's definitely related to the fact that we're not only naming them in this new indictment and a case we're opening again next month. We're actually taking direct action at these churches again, and they don't like it. Neither did their Chinese backers, you know, right on the front line here in all this work. Right, yeah, you guys are fantastic. And, and, and so this indictment, for me... Because it highlights the the van, you know, reading it, skim through it today as I have, I'm just thinking, I've got this is this is right in the center of uh, yep. BC and Vancouver. So you you you're getting uh, attacked 
uh, you know, and, and if you were were uh, native or, or indigenous, perhaps would have been much worse. But what they're doing, you know, seems clumsy to me, if not uh, counterproductive, shooting themselves in the foot, because they're just drawing the attention onto the fact that, and you say that they went into the uh, to the native guys as well and, and started attacking them. So so there's this itchy trigger figure, tensions rising, you know, the, they're, they're getting nervous or whatever, but they're not doing themselves any favors by this case being September the 11th coming up in, you know, a couple of weeks and them being particularly significantly active with, you know, bully boy thuggery tactics currently. It's no well, that's the thing. It's a lesson. It's like Sinsu says in any situation, when you when you go through a bad experience, you've got to learn the lesson from it. And what is obvious here is that we always think in terms of the enemy as being this uniform body, this faceless man behind the mask. And it isn't. I mean, the fact is the cops on the ground do whatever the hell they want. They're getting nervous because we've named them. I mean, in this indictment, we named the, the, the Vancouver City uh, chiefs, chiefs of police. We named the uh, Peter Montague with the RCMP. We named the commissioner of the RCMP. And all the local guys were naming in the church, the cops, the government. And, uh, and they get nervous about that, and they take action on their own. Regardless yeah. of what the big guys are, are strategizing, they're worried because their ass is on the ground right you know, they're the ones who could go to jail, not the former prime minister, and they know it. So they take action on their own. And that's obviously what happened, right? Okay, so let, let's get into it. I think with the time allotted we've got here, uh, let's just look at Harriet, I think, today. You know, if we can maybe leave, leave uh, William and, and Johnny Bingo for, for another uh, chat. But Harriet, would, would, she, would she be considered a, a, a tribal leader? Was, was she one of the, the tri- tribe mothers? Was that the phrase? Clan mothers? Um, well, clan mothers were all over the the continent, and they were systematically wiped out when they when the Europeans came in. They uh, targeted these people. Let you know, talking about William, one of the reasons he was targeted and Harriet is they were what's called spirit dancers. So they were from the lineage of um, people who knew the sacred knowledge. They were traditionalists, but the government and churches came in wiped out these people and replaced them with the present puppet chiefs who were, you know, converted Catholics or Anglicans or whoever, or United Church. And they run, they administered the genocide on the reservations for the system. But people like Harriet and William, they were always targeted. And Harriet reached out, you know, the, reason, the way we met, if people don't know the story, after the United Church fired me and went to my wife and said, we're going to you know, uh, make sure this guy never works again. We'll help you do, with your divorce if you want to leave him. All of that was in play in late 1995 after I discovered about these crimes in the local res school in Alberta. And uh, we held a protest in December 1995 at the United Church head office in Vancouver. Harriet reads about it. You know, this is before the issue was censored in the media. So the media reported that there's this protest. Harriet hears about it and comes down to her protest. She's talking to the Vancouver Sun reporters and she says, I saw the murder of a little girl Christmas Eve, 1946. First time anyone had gone to the media publicly with the eyewitness account of a murder. She said little Maisie Shaw was crying for her mother at the top of the stairs. Harriet was hiding under the stairs because she got raped every night. They would target her and take her out this principal Caldwell, the, uh, the minister and, and principal of that school, um, they targeted her. So Harriet was hiding under the stairs. She looks up and watches little Maisie get kicked in the stomach by Caldwell. She goes flying down the stairs, lands 
dead at the bottom of the stairs. Her eyes open, body wasn't moving, she wasn't breathing. That story went all over the place. As soon as it hit the Vancouver Sun, the next day, the United Church called up my wife and said, time to divorce this guy. Um, and they issued the, 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 you know, the order to have me expelled from the church. My defrocking trial began at that point. But the, the, the story had gotten out, and based on Harriet's account, we started holding the first meetings, um, the first rallies, the public gatherings um, that led to our first tribunal in 1998. So really, she and I kicked off the whole thing based on that first contact we had at that protest at the United Church office, right? So, so would you describe Harriet as a as a as a catalyst, as as an inspiration? Oh yeah, yeah. She was, you know, very soon after that, I went to her home on the Squamish Reservation. I couldn't breathe. The you know the, the, these homes, they're like they're they're like slums. They're not allowed to even renovate their home without permission from the government. They're like concentration camps. And I'm sitting there in this mold covered house, and she's telling me all these incredible stories of all the crimes she witnessed in the rest school. And she said, you're the only white guy I can trust because I saw how the church has gone after you for trying to tell the truth of this. So you're my ally. I know you're a white guy I can trust because they're going after you too. And from that moment on until she got murdered, in, um, you know, uh, 12 years later, uh, we were at the heart of this campaign and it all grew up around everything we did. So, um, you know, th that, that was part of the story of, of why they eventually killed her, right? And, and you, you said just then, I think you, you were referring to Harriet, but it might have been Macy, maybe it was both. But as a child, she was she was raped every night by these. Oh, yeah. Bastards. Well, they did that, too. You see, they uh, Harriet describes getting, uh, leaving her village, um, Klaus. It's a little village on the southwest corner of Vancouver Island. When she was a little girl, this would be in the early, around 1940, she woke up one morning, there was a whistle sound, an RCMP gunboat had landed on the beach, and the Mounties get out with their clubs. They start running around the village, beating down all the parents, grabbing the children and tying them together by a rope and loading them on the boat like a slave ship, right? Her grandmother hid her under the house, so Harriet was watching this from under the stairs, and they saw her shoot people. They saw, saw the Mount She saw the Mounties shoot people. Um, they took every single child out of that village except her. And she said at the end of the day, there were no children but her left. All the parents sat on the beach and just cried and wailed for a day because the children are all gone. Imagine no children. And she, they, her grandmother hid her and it worked for a few weeks, but then somebody reported her. Uh, one of their own people reported her. Harriet got carted off to the same place, um, the Alberni Rest School and uh, in Port Alberni, run by the United Church. She said the first day she got there, there were 300 children lined up naked in the rain. And there were um, there was people coming around shaving their heads. And off to the side, she noticed these young boys. They were native, but they were dressed better. They had short hair, and they were all holding clubs. And she turned to her cousin and spoke in her language. And one of these boys came over and clubbed her on the head and said, don't speak the heathen language. Uh, only speak English, but she didn't know English. These were kids who had been chosen. They uh, they were called the uh, the enforcers, and they would like the Zonderkommando at at Auschwitz, the Jewish trustees who would load the other Jews onto the cattle car and that load them into the gas ovens. This is what these Indian kids were, and those children were in the protected group, the the, the kids who beat down the other natives. They were um, given special food. They weren't really raped that often. 
They went on to become the tribal council chiefs. Guys like Ron Hamilton, Charlie Thompson, who shut down our investigation in Port Alberni. They attacked Harriet. They beat up our eyewitness, Harry Wilson, when he tried speaking about the same thing. They worked, they're the arm of the government, and they got trained that way at a young age. And the people like Harriet got killed or targeted for destruction. So you're either eliminated right away, used as sex object and experimental toys in these research projects, or part of the protected group. There, were, there was no other option allowed to the children. Well, that's why half of them died. And it's it's psychologically very very sophisticated that you, you you turn in inverted commas their own on them the divide and rule and then the you know the characters like uh, Harriet and and William Coombs and Johnny Benger Dawson they they're presented with their own people betraying them and and turning on them and and that crushing of spirit that is attempted through that just adds to the strength of character for um for for Harriet you know how the, had this woman. Uh, as, a, as a child, had gone through such extraordinary, astonishing, intense trauma and and come through the other end of that with such lucid, powerful... Well, she was vocal. rare. Don't forget, Harriet was rare. Um, most She's one of the few people I ever met who had gone through that who didn't kill themselves or was in a state of collapse. Exactly, and, Right. And and so, I mean, it's all here. The trouble is these days is people never take the time to look at this stuff. It's been in Murder by Decree here f- since 2016 on all our website, murderbydecree.com. This recent book I issued, kind of a summary of right. the shutdown of our campaign, very important book to get Crimes Against Humanity in Canada, the evidence. Um, and that's, again, a, a lot of the content of there is going to be in our court case next month in Vancouver. Um, But the point is, she was unique, just like I was unique, in that we went up against our own people. And when you do that, you're on your own and you're targeted eventually. So somebody like me, they leave to hang out to dry, as an example. Look at how isolated Kevin is. He can't even rent a room, can't even rent a room without being shut down. That's your fate if you do as a white person what he did. Natives, they just kill. And they do it in plain sight to scare everybody else off, which often works. Right. Yeah, and, and that that bit you mentioned, uh, it's, it's in your book, uh, Unrelenting, where the the, the boats are, t- are just rounding up the children. You know, it's it's uh, that that those few uh, paragraphs. I remember reading them just after my life had been had been destroyed, and I was feeling very sorry for myself and feeling like you know I was isolated on my own. Then I read your book and I realized that you know what I've been through was a drop in the ocean compared to what characters like William Coombs and Harriet Nahani and Johnny Bingo Dawson have been through, that, that these these mothers, these parents had actually had their children you know, ripped out of their care and, and taken away by uniformed uh, regiments of, of, of kidnapping murderers and, and never to be seen again. It's, it's, right. it's just... And, and, you know, and that's, you know... Oh, and um, the problem with talking about this stuff now is they've already done the rewrite of this officially. So now people will say, oh, yeah, we know all about that because they've got the sanitized version. And now they're going so far in their turning back of the clock as to say, hey, there are no mass graves of these children, even though they admit that over half of them died. Well, where are the bodies? Right. So we've got to start from scratch again and show not only the real story of what happened, but how it's still going on. 
And that's why they're coming down on us. That's why they attacked me the other day, because we're saying it's still happening now. China's doing it with death squads all over BC to get the oil and gas. And anyone who talk about, about, about the true story, it's going to lead to the present, because here's an example. The mass graves of children are still used. Those still areas are still used as mass graves and as body dumping sites. So they don't want people asking questions about the residential school graves because they could dig in the wrong spot and find the recently dumped bodies of all the native people they're killing up north and in other places right here in Vancouver. So, you know, they've got to really, anyone who starts talking about mass graves again, they go after in a big way. The fact they attack us again physically shows how worried they are, right? And, and there's, you know, you're, you're, you're battling on so many fronts. You, 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 you got your books, you got your, um, uh, your, your court cases and, and you got your, um, uh, your radio show, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That, uh, you know, they, they, they are, they've got to be on, on the back foot. And, and so this indictment, then let's get into the details because yeah. we, we get, we get to Harry. And I want to ask you a little more about, about how they used your wife too, because that, you know, has a real personal, um, uh, connotation for, for, for me too. Uh, a public indictment issued by the chief prosecutor of the court Monday, September 11th, 2023, in the matter of the People versus Charles Mountbatten, Windsor, Josie Jorge Bergoglio et al. And so, you know, on, on, talking about these these uh, different threads, these different avenues you're pursuing, you know, you've got that big uh, mass grave genocidal uh, uh, indictment, as well as these really. Uh, Laser sharp individual ones that we're looking at here. Case case talking number one: deaths of Harriet and Ahani, William Coombs and Johnny Bingo Dawson. The general facts of the case: Harriet and Ahani, William Coombs and Johnny Bingo Dawson, hereafter referred to as the deceased, were Indigenous people of respectively the Pachedat, Interior Salish, and Nishka nations. Apologies if my pronunciation isn't great. There, they were survivors of respectively Port Alberni, Kamloops, and Mission. And Alert Bay Indian Residential Schools, aka death camps, my words, not not the indictment. And they each witnessed the killing and burial of children in those facilities by staff and clergy. The deceased were active members of the Vancouver based campaign to expose and prosecute genocide and other crimes in these church run facilities. They were close confidants and supporters of Kevin Annett, the co founder of this campaign. They participated in many public protests and peaceful occupations of the guilty Catholic, Anglican, and United Churches between 20, 2000 and 2011 until the time of their deaths. The deceased died respectively February 24th, 2007, February 26th, 2011, and December the 9th, 2009, in the city of Vancouver, all three. Their deaths occurred after their arrest and incarceration by Royal Canadian Mounted Police or the Vancouver City Police. Okay, so there's a couple of pictures. I'll, I'll put these clips in. Okay, Harriet Nahani was the first eyewitness to a murder at a Canadian Indian residential school to go public and be quoted by the media, in the media. December the 18th, 1995. Yeah. Her, her account of the killing of Alberni Residential School inmate Macy Shaw, as we've spoken about, by principal and United Church clergyman Alfred Caldwell on Christmas Eve 1946 sparked the formation of Vancouver-based right. campaign document publicized and so, confronted crimes. Like we've all said, I mean, that's kind of a repetition of what, what I had said already. And, and the, the thing about this indictment is that it's a legal document that's going to be in filed not only with the International Common Law Court of Justice, we're taking it right into the BC Supreme Court. And one of the, they know that their spies have told them that already. And, you know, so they are worried about that, because then it's a public document, then 
you can access it. And if they don't allow you to access it, it's more egg on their face. So it's they're kind of a no-win situation now. And this news of what happened to me is going to go all over the planet. It's going to wake people up again to, hey, they attack Kevin again. They must, he must be onto something. So right. they're, they're shooting themselves in the foot, which is what happened every other time we did this campaign. You know, I remember Har- when Harriet and I, here's another funny anecdote um, or anecdote. They, uh, <laughs> when Harriet and I did the, uh, that protest, before we had made any accusation against the United Church, Virginia Coleman, who is the secretary general, makes a issues a press release and said, we didn't know anything about this murder of Maisie Shaw and we didn't cover up anything. Well, no one had accused them of a cover up. And yet they say we didn't cover it up. In other words, they did, but they, they, it was like the mosquito and the elephant's ear. They're boom, they overreacted. Like Sun Tzu said, you probe the enemy, get them to overreact and they expose themselves. That's exactly what they did. And that's what they're doing again now by going after me and we can do this even more. Another example, we're going to the Vancouver City Council meeting September 12th, the next day. And we're saying, look, these are convicted child raping, child trafficking organizations. You cannot license them. You cannot give any kind of privileges or licensing or tax exemption to the Catholic Anglican United Churches or including in a crime. As a city council, you've got to nullify all those licenses. Just like the police have to support us when we reclaim these buildings, we're standing on the law. Now that puts the city council in a position of, are you going to collude with, self-admitted genocidal organizations or you're going to have you see they're, so they're they'll be caught too that's what you do you keep ramping up the pressure and that's how you get results when you're just a few right well they're in a flat headspin right because they're between yeah. the proverbial rock and the hard place because you know they, they've, they've got their uh, i'm sure there's manipulation coercion if not blackmail you know uh pushing them in the direction of obeying what their orders are, you know, the the system and the, the the tyranny and the cabal. But at the same time, they see this wave of this tsunami of awareness and yeah. exposure coming and they've got, they got no answer to it. You know, they can take you down a side alley and wrench well, your shoulder. Socket, they, get not- they get personal. They get personal. They attack you. And you mentioned my ex-wife earlier. I remember uh, one of the letters put in my, um, when they were defrocking me, we the, we gave to the United Church all these letters from supporters proving that it had been a criminal conspiracy against me because of what I was bringing out. One of the letters from a Métis native man and who was in my congregation, Jack McDonald, said he was part of a conversation of members of my church. And one of them tied to the old guard of the church said, we can't get to Kevin, so we're going to have to get to him through his family and wife. Wow. And that's exactly what they did. They they went to Ann McNamee, my wife, and said, he not only isn't going to he isn't going to work, but you could be in trouble if you're associated with him. So we'll make sure you get the children in a divorce trial. Now, how could they make sure of that unless they had BC Supreme Court judges on their side? You see, it was the old boys' club all working together, and sure enough, my two daughters got taken by her. Um, and all along the way, over the years, she worked with the churches and the police and everyone to harass me, to monitor me, uh, to make my life hell, because that's what you do with a whistleblower. You make them have to fight on many fronts, and they go after first the people you love the most. They go after your family. You know, in my whistleblower manual, we talk about that. You know, right. once you relied on the most, they'll be the first ones taken out. You've got to learn to rely on yourself and find your new family among people like you and, and others, right? So that that kind of I, I learned that and they're doing it again, but it just shows you that they're like a big corporation. They're stuck in a certain way of responding. They can only do the same thing over and over again, whereas we can be very flexible in our methods. Right. 
and and you say picking off the you mentioned pick, picking off the stragglers as as there's a yeah. retreat going on. Well, well, here we got names, right? RCP, RCMP officers, Jerry Peters, Paul Wilms, and then they're taking orders from Inspector Pete Montague of E Division uh, yeah. in Vancouver. So so you 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 know you're cat amongst the pigeons. They're they're running uh, headless, you know, wondering what the hell to do when, you know, individuals are now getting... Uh, well, I'll tell you about... I'll, you mentioned those three guys. It's quite a gong show. Uh, right after Harriet and I made the news, this uh, Jer- Jerry Peters showed up, and he said, I'm with the RCMP task force into residential schools. And I said, really? I didn't know there was one. Uh, you've got a task force looking into yourself because the RCMP are the ones who would grab the children like they did that day at Harriet's village in Clouse that I described. It was the Mounties who were like the SS in the camp. They would grab the kids. They would track them down and bring them back. They would bury the, the bodies after they died secretly. And you're going to investigate yourselves? So I didn't make friends with him very much, but uh, he got very angry at me. And, but after a while, he said to me, you and Harriet aren't credible witnesses, and nobody is ever going to come forward and support you. It'll never go to trial. And I said... Really, you as a Mountie can guarantee that this issue will never go to court. And he said, this is a direct quote, some people may take offense at what you're doing and and they may take action to shut you down. So you better come to me. Like, in other words, it's like the mafia offering protection to you, right? That, and same thing repeated by Paul Wilms. Peter Montague got even more threatening. He said right after a tribunal to people, take down Annette and you take down the issue. Okay. And wow. he knew that, you know, I'm so associated with it that you got to discredit me. All of these smears on the on the Internet, every all the attacks that people talk about over the last 25 years, it was started by that one guy in 1998, Peter Montague, and it filtered out all over the world after that. And, uh, you know, so these are the we're going right to the scene of the crime and the main actors. Yeah. Yeah, it's all turning around. So uh, the next paragraph, between 95 and 97, Peter Montague worked closely, interested in the details there, with the United Church officials John Jessamine, Phil Spencer, Brian Thorpe, and Annette's then-wife, Anne McNamee. In monitoring, firing, blacklisting, and criminally harassing him after he went public with evidence of Alberni residential school killings. So so multi-agency, cops, uh, courts, and church, and... You know, you get when it moves away from multi-agency. When it gets to family and domestics, when they've they've got your your, your wife uh, on the payroll. Well, that's the way that that's the way it happens. But uh, the point is, look at all those agencies. They're all directly implicated in the killing of children over the over the generations. They're all implicated in the rest school death camps, and the the follow today, and that it's never stopped. And our movement was the only one in the world saying that and still says it, that there's no break in time between the genocide then and now. It's all a continuity. And it's, it, it, they can get away with it now, including the COVID police state, because they got away with this crime and the cover-up. They did. And that's one of the reasons I wrote that book, the evidence yeah. of crimes against humanity, right? Right. Okay, so these overt assaults against Nahani and Anit were accompanied by the covert infiltration and disruption of the Truth Commission and uh, FRD activities. Friends um, and relative, that's friends and relatives of the disappeared. We set up. They disappeared. Like, yeah. 
An RCMP, Royal Canadian Mounted Police, and former FBI informant operative named James Craven headed this black ops campaign after the June 1998 tribunal, which he had infiltrated. Craven circulated lies and smears about Nahani and Annette in the media. He also paid their Aboriginal colleagues, like Amy and Dennis Talio, to speak against them. As with Kevin Annette, these payoffs extended to Nahani's friends and family members. So the template, right. you know, I know it, you know it, and Harry's yeah. had it. You, you just see it. Evidence indicates that these black ops, these are black operations, implicate national officials of the RCMP and Canadian government, including, okay, here we go, we're moving up the, uh, the scale a bit, for, former Prime Minister Jean Chrétien. It is this, Chrétien. Uh, now, he was, let, let me describe some of this, guys. Um, the, um, J- Jim Craven, he showed up. You know, when we did our first tribunal, this United Nations group, IRAM, sponsored it. And what, he showed up as a judge. He claimed to be Cherokee from America. And uh, he sat there as a judge. The whole time he was circulating uh, smears and rumors to try to undercut what we were doing at the, at the tribunal. This came out later. As a matter of fact, it came out that he had been a paid FBI informant that had infiltrated Greenpeace and the Sea Shepherd Society. And he had a bad name all over America for being an infiltrator. Well, he wasn't known up in Vancouver, naive us. And he led the, the, the whole thing for a while against us. But uh, it, like you said, it went a lot higher. In, right after the tribunal, Prime Minister Jean Chrétien, he was Prime Minister of Canada between 1993 and 2003. He started um, the, the kind of clean sweep of government documents. He ordered two things. He said any document about the residential schools had to be swabbed. Any reference to a dead child, uh, you know, uh, mass graves, all of that. That's when they started the big erasure. Plus offering broad money, the so-called Aboriginal Healing Fund could be given to any survivor provided they agreed never to sue the church or government and never to name the, the, the uh, you know, the, the name of a dead child or any of that. So, he set that in motion and he knew about these attacks and I believe personally gave sanction to the shutdown and smear and, and attacks on us that killed seven of our people, including the ones we were talking about today, William Harriet, the others. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's that template, isn't it? They, they, uh, uh, they, they've got their, their, their way of, uh, putting their, their order out of chaos. It's, uh, Order ab chaos is this uh, Freemasonry uh, maxim, I believe, where, where they, they they put their people in to to mess up uh, an opposition organization, let's keep it general. But you know, when there's a group or a, uh, a committee coming together that that they don't like, that they're frightened of, they 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 turn it into chaos, right? Well, I, I mentioned, yeah, that's right. And I mentioned in the uh, the recent uh, posting I did about the mass graves, I, I posted a thing called uh, Bodies, Bodies, Who's Got the Bodies? Looking into this whole absurdity of saying there are no mass graves now when they admitted to them. Um, and uh, one of the things that that I uh, I mentioned in that is that um, it takes, you know, the, the old saying, it takes a village to raise a child. That's okay. a really nice you know, term that, that you know, liberal yuppies like to spout all the time. Well, it also takes a village to kill a child and to hide the remains. And okay. the main uh, ally in this for the, the criminals is the Canadian public themselves because A, they don't want to hear about it. 
B, they do everything. And by that, by public, I'm including the so-called awake people, all the people on the Internet who claim to be aware of all of these COVID conspiracies and that. And yet when it comes to this matter, they all run away. They all shy away because it's in their own backyard. They don't want to hear about it. And they have an excuse now not to listen because they say, oh, no, it's all been dealt with. Right. Um, you know, it's the it's the it's the rewriting of history. That is the biggest enemy now and the the lethargy and inertia of the people around us. The only people we're, we're, who are responding to our our movement now are the ones who did originally the homeless Aboriginal population because they've got nothing to lose. Everybody else is standing right, right back from this. And that's going to be the thing that defeats it again. The, um, you know, Martin Luther King's old saying, it's not the minority of evil people who are the problem, but the majority of good people who never do anything. And stand yeah. back and let the few good who are doing something get crushed. And that's our situation right now. It's why I could be jumped and beaten up in an alley because we don't have that support around us. I have to rely on the people down on the street who are totally vulnerable. They can die at any moment, just like any of us can if you're working down there. So, I mean, that's an appeal to people listening to this that, you know, if you guys don't get off your ass and see that this is a threat to you as well, why do you think we have COVID now? because we we didn't get enough support in stopping this crime 20 years ago i i agree completely that the the covid thing is is you know uh, as, as murderous as it is 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 another look over there one so that you know the, the people at the coalface the the nurses in the hospitals or the yeah. doctors in the office are, are, are getting the the rap for the covid thing and then you know it buys more time for for, for what you're unearthing and you know the the the, the child's the ancient to present child brutality that's constant, constantly rolling out with with this template is uh, is the thing that they're they're absolutely uh, petrified about about coming to the surface and and being properly divulged. So back to uh, the indictment. Despite yeah. these, Hani countered these smears and persisted in her public campaign alongside Anna Appendix too. They held the first uh, friends and relative, di- not deceased friends and relative. Disappeared. disappeared. Sponsored, sponsored Aboriginal Holocaust Memorial Day in Vancouver, April 15, 2005, escalating their church occupants. Nahani also helped Annette produce his seminal award-winning documentary film of the residential school genocide, Unrepentant. If you haven't seen that, ladies and gentlemen, watching this, you must watch Unrepentant, which was released globally less than one month before Nahani died, February 2007. At the time of her death, Harriet Nahani was preparing to undertake a national speaking tour with Kevin Annett, equipped with Unrepentant. That was to culminate in a protest and global press conference at Parliament in Ottawa, March 15th, 2007. On January 24th, 2007, Nahani was arrested by RCMP officers at a peaceful protest in North Vancouver. She was held without bail, charged with public mischief and sentenced by B.C. Supreme Court Judge Brenda Brown to incarceration in an unheated cell, Surrey Redmond Prison. So they froze her to death. Well, let me tell you about Brenda Brown. Um, she was the judge who brought in the official cover-up, Indian Residential School Resolution Committee. And what that was, she gave judicial sanction to the pain of uh, bribe money to survivors, saying that if you get this government money, you can't ever sue. Uh, the official destruction of records. She was the judge who, who kind of uh, navigated that through the court system. She's the one who, who condemns Harriet to death. Harriet was just standing there at a protest. Uh, they, were, they were running a thing called the Sea to Sky Highway through indigenous land. She was standing there peacefully, not blocking traffic, 
they target her of all the people there, these cops, there's a picture of her being led away uh, in the indictment by these two cops. They target her, take her away, slam dunk, put her in prison. They probably did something to her in prison to induce that cancer because she was dead within three weeks. So they murdered her there in the prison. Judge Brenda Brown is in the indictment. She's going to be summoned as well to appear to answer what she did. Right. Okay. And and they 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 use the the, the female profile to right. to create the illusion that women care more. Women are mothers. Women don't do anything <laughs> right. nasty. You know, it's, it's another. I could uh, make a comment. You know. <laughs> I could make a comment about my ex-wife, but I won't. Right. <laughs> you know, I, I could too. <laughs> <laughs> Small world, brother. Right, but you know, just just on that one, my my ex, right? She was, uh, you know, there's lots of aspects of her character that are, that are a mystery to me, especially after what happened. But one thing I'm 100 percent certain of is is her controlling her environment. You know, nothing left to chance. Everything is prepared and planned and organized to the nth degree so, to help her with with deep insecurities. I think so. For her to to take this crime that she was committing, you know, human rights against the children. Uh, defamation of character against me, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, meant that she was taking a risk from a certain perspective of going into court. Because in a fair world, she would, she would, she could well lose because she was per- committing perjury in court, right? And and f- f- what you know about her character to do that is completely uh, off the wall and, and you know um, out, out of character. Unless she knew, she must have known. Unless- she- Known. She knew the verdict because, yeah. you know, if the system's on her side, they're doing everything right. to attack you. They go she to the weak have, element. Yeah. Oh, she must well, have had assurance that she was going to get through that unscathed and, and, you know. Absolutely. They make a deal. Yeah. And they did with Anne. Like, Anne had a very bad troubled abuse background. Uh, they went to her. It gets even more messy because when she was in – we when we're still married and I was still working in at St. Andrews in Port Alberni as the minister – she was in counseling for her trauma she had suffered at a very young age at the hands of her own brother and father, you know, and I won't mention the details, but it was very bad what had happened to her. And um, she went to the counselor to talk about this, this guy, Jack Thornburg, who was in my congregation. Well, Thornburg goes to the United Church with information about her condition. They totally unethical. I would get him disbarred or thrown out of his profession for doing that. They use that information knowing what buttons to press with Anne. They undoubtedly did that with your own wife as well. They go after the weak one. And they, they, there's this weird uh, phenomenon called transference where the rage she had towards her father psychologically became transferred onto me or okay. your wife onto you. And you become the enemy. And they know how to stimulate that and manipulate it to use the victims to screw the people they want. So they, as cowards, they're using her to take us out. Right. not themselves, and then they can wash their hands and say, oh, it's just a marital dispute, right? Um, that's how it's done, right? Well, they're pawns on the game, right? They, they, and, you know, what kind of manipulation and coercion and pressure right. gets, you know, can probably vary in, in many different respects. But, uh, you know, they, 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 they keep themselves concealed behind the scenes up in the ivory towers or whatever, and, right. and they use these, these low-down pawns to, to do the dirty work, right? Well, just like but, they did. Like they did in the death camps. They used one of the native kids to wipe out the other native kids. They're using the natives now to attack each other. And they pick up the marbles and, and they're, they come off literally wiped clean, right? So, I mean, I, we know how they operate now. And that's why kind of on a note of hope, because we know how they operate so well, they're very vulnerable. And we know exactly what buttons of theirs to press as well. 
and we've talked and about one that of, a lot. One of the fascinating things about this indictment that uh, we spoke about a couple of weeks ago is that you're offering these low-level coalface, uh, you know, doing the goons, doing the dirty work, to come forwards, present their right. evidence, offer their evidence, and and receive protection uh, and perhaps even a pardon. You know, over to you because they're helping with the the justice aspect. Yeah, you get immunity from prosecution if you come forward. So any of these people, if they're going to give testimony, they, they'll get immunity from, from prosecution. And uh, that's using divide and conquer against them the way they use it against us all the time. We say to the churches and government, anyone in your ranks, come forward with any dirt you have and you'll be rewarded and, and, and you won't be prosecuted. So, um, you know, th that's why I say to anyone listening – have them write to us, uh, angelfire101 at protonmail.com, and we will meet with them, and we need their testimony and support in this. And, and this is where the scales are beginning to tip the critical point or uh, tipping point, whatever you want to say, because as the, the power, the sands of time or whatever in, in the, the time thing shift, then you know they're, they're beginning to have to weigh up the, the bigger picture. Who's... Who's got the power here? Who's got the, the greatest forces and, you know, the muscle? And if I if I do write an email to Proto Angelfire 101 ProtoMail uh, to Kevin and, and offer to help with the, the evidence and, and the, uh, the justice aspect, you know, is there enough uh, power yet for, for that actually to happen for me to receive protection? It's, it's a really well interesting. That's why that's why they're trying to scare me away right now and try to get me to drop out in despair by physically assaulting me. That's all they got left, um, because they yeah. know if they take me out and get people see, I, I, I'm there. I'm the inspiration for people like that right. because they say, Kevin survived almost 30 years in this just by being bold and public and never stopping. Well, then maybe I can too. So they got to take out the example just like they took out Harriet. You see, you can kill an Indian in Canada without a legal consequence because of the Indian Act. They're not citizens. So they can kill Harriet all they like. No one ever goes to jail the whole bit. With me, it get, gets a bit stickier. So they can't kill me outright. At least, well, they can eventually if they have to, but they don't like going down that route. They would rather discredit, and if that doesn't work, go after me again personally. I'm sure they're going to go after my children again, even though Claire and Ellen are now in their 30s. They could easily start threatening their jobs, you know, turning the screws on them. You know, I don't doubt any of that might happen, right? Uh, as we as we come to our, our time allotment, Kevin, you know, it makes yeah. me think of that famous quote, you know, strike me down and I'll only grow stronger. Because as, as we, we look at the final paragraph, <clears throat> in, in that prison, the honey quickly developed bronchitis bronchial congestion and pneumonia. She died of alleged lung cancer February 24, 2007, at the age of 20, of 71. No death certificate for Harry Nahani was in, issued, but physically she, she may she may be gone, but the, the spirit. Uh, well, and they took, on the, on the fourth anniversary of her death, that's when they took William Coombs into the hospital to kill him, and then he was dead two days later. So it's done on certain dates deliberately. Um, you know, uh, to remind people, look, we have a long memory. We're going to take out anybody who talks about this stuff. But, you know, I also remember that beautiful memory of William uh, walking into the church unafraid when he normally couldn't go anywhere near a Catholic church because of his horrible memories of getting tortured so badly. He's there that day standing in our occupied church because he took strength from all of us. And that's why these actions are so essential. As soon as you get a, even five or ten people together and take action, you see them running for the hills. 
priests literally ran out the back door when we came into those churches. And I got to say to everybody all over the world, target the Catholic church wherever you are, like Georgina, our sister in Australia. Go in there. She goes in all by herself and they got it nervous. Just a few of you going in there and saying, get out. Your time is over. We're reclaiming this building. That's what yeah. has them scared. That's their weak Achilles heel. And if you don't press it, you know, if you don't grab them where they're weak, then you're screwed, right? All right, because even the, even the biggest entity in the forest runs as fast as they can the other direction when they see a swarm of bees, right? And you might be able to swat a couple of individuals here and there, but the swarm yeah. is phenomenally powerful, and it's 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 recognizing its collective uh, power now. I think it's it's well, time. And we, they, people recognize it when they see examples. We lead by example, not by information, because we're in an information overload. Don't forget. People don't take in information they see in the screen anymore because they're just they're too wired. It, it, it's just words. But when they see people going into a church and saying, get out and the priest running out, when they see them confronting their town council, you know, when they see them holding the evidence, the bones and the buttons from the of the of the children, that's irrefutable. And they know they have to do something about it. So that's why action is a measure of all things right now. Right. Yeah. Yeah, push is coming to shove in a big way. So let, let's end on just some information for people. Murderbydecree.com under ITCCS updates. That's where all the notices are. September 10th, 11th, and 12th. September 10th is a Sunday. We'll be doing actions all over the world. Mark that date on your calendar for actions at your local churches on that day. Um, September 11th is our press conference, and uh, I'm going to be holding a big uh, meeting where we go into detail about the indictment and the summons. The summonses, the summonses will be issued that day against all 29 people named in the indictment, and the case will begin. They have two weeks to respond, and then we start the court case. And don't forget, if they don't respond, we, an immediate issue, uh, an immediate um, verdict can be issued against them of guilty. It's called a pro-confesso guilt. If you don't respond and challenge, you can instantly be found guilty and, and arrest warrants issued. So um, we, we already have that in, in motion. And, um, you know, again, angelfire101 at protonmail.com if, if you want to be involved, especially if you're in the Vancouver area, write to us. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. Okay, let's, uh, let's finish on this one, Kevin, and then we'll come back for, for William and uh, uh, Bingo, Johnny Bingo Dawson. Next thanks. time. Thank, thanks, Owen. Tremendous. Thanks, Kev.